Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Let's turn, listen carefully now where we're turning because this is going to definitively change the title of this epistle forever here to not Ephesians, but Laodiceans, Laodiceans chapter one. I'll explain that there's some lower blade data that explains Colossians 4.16 as Paul wrote to the Colossians. See to it that you read the letter to the Laodiceans, even as you should see to it that they should read this letter, Colossians also. Paul wrote three epistles and sent them with one dispatch. First one he wrote to not Ephesus, but Laodicea, makes a, a unique revelation connection here. Second one was Colossians after finding about a community that had been founded by proxy, not by him, but by a person named Epaphras. He found out news of this from Onesimus, the truant slave who came to him to ask for intervention with his friend Philemon. And so Paul wrote Colossians with a little more urgency. He sent the epistle to the Laodiceans, which we have, if you see, most of your translations have in to Ephesus in brackets. It's not in the original language. It was put there by a scribe who didn't want to put Laodiceans in there because he thought they didn't fare too well in Revelation, whereas the Ephesians did. So that screwed up everything. So it is Laodiceans, and you'll see this come into focus more and more. I'm not even going to call it Ephesians anymore. Laodiceans. So we can do this if you want. We'll call it Leo instead of Eph by abbreviation. It's going to be Leo, Laodiceans. And there's lower blade data and history that supports this. So Paul sent these three epistles as he was imprisoned at the time in a place called Atomia, probably. I'm using some of the data here from Campbell's book on framing Paul, which I found to be fascinating and followed it through. So I did about 1,500 pages of reading between Revelation and this just because I wanted to have some research to go on before we got into the study on Better Call Paul. Adamea was a little bit east of Colossae. Paul was in prison. We don't know too much about what happened to Paul after 40, but we do know, as he recollected his history, that he labored more than all the other apostles, that he was in much labor in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, and 10, by the grace of God that was given to him. We know that he had many imprisonments, and this was just one of them, a six-month imprisonment in a place in Asia called Asia Minor, the provincial Asia, called Adamea, and was there for about six months. And again, it was from that imprisonment that he wrote Colossians and Philemon, but first he wrote Laodiceans. Laodiceans is a very unusual, and I think, and agree with Douglas Campbell on this, it's the most important epistle that Paul wrote, and I'll explain why And throughout the course of this message. So he sent a dispatch of three epistles with another slave named Tychicus, and he was to bring all three to Colossae. And Colossians and Philemon hang together very much so, especially with regard to Paul's intervention on Philemon, to not only release Onesimus from his slavery position, but to accept him as a beloved brother. And then he actually translated that into Colossians 4 in the so-called slave and master passage in which there was kind of a, well, I think there was enough power in there to undo slavery. And it's very interesting. So Paul intended Colossae to receive three epistles. The one he wrote to Laodiceans, or to Laodicea, the one he wrote, of course, to the Colossians specifically, in which he addressed certain things that came about because of a third-party involvement and a false teacher, and he's always dealing with this. In eight of the ten epistles, apart from the so-called pastorals, and we'll be teaching on them too down the road, in eight of the ten epistles that Paul wrote in his collection of epistles, eight of the 10, there was a third party involvement that he had to address in that epistle. And that, as we see, this becomes far more in focus than anywhere else in Romans, because Romans ends up being a dialectic between Paul and this teacher. He finally confronts him and knows exactly what he's all about and unfolds the whole idea of his pseudo gospel 
in order to knock it down and drag it out forever. Romans was written a couple of years after Ephesians, as we call it, Laodiceans now. And so the Colossians would have received three epistles. And it was one to Philemon, was not written to Philemon alone, but to Philemon and his wife Aphia and to the church that's in the house of Archippus. It was a whole congregational letter in which Philemon was singled out a little bit. So the Colossians would have gotten Laodiceans, they would have gotten Colossians and Philemon, and then a dispatch of two epistles would have gone to Laodicea, the Colossian epistle and the epistle that he originally wrote for the Laodiceans, a group of pagan converted Christians in the city of Laodicea in the Lycus Valley. There were three cities in the Lycus Valley, Colossae, Herapolis and Laodicea, and this was intended for Laodicea. Now, our general aim in this passage, in this passage of our teaching, in this series, which I call Better Call Paul, I want to remind you of our general aim. I made this aim, and, and incidentally, the ultimate end of this is a deep and abiding, life-transforming truth. This will get us to the Christian life in a way that we have not seen before. Much of what passes for Christianity today is not that at all. It's just a re-education of Adamic nature. And you can make the Adamic nature weep at a message. You can make him believe a creed. You can make him go through sacramental motions. You can dunk him in water. You can feed him bread and wine. You can make him do moral things. He will do moral things, and then he will subtly boast about them. And he'll do a lot of things that have nothing to do with the Christian life. Much of Christendom today is a re-education of the Adamic ontology. It's just a kind of a reconfiguration of the Adamic nature with a little moral twist to it, a little bit of an ethical twist. So people are impressed by a change, not a change that's internal and transformative and takes you beyond Adamic ontology, but just a reconfiguration of the Adamic nature or the flesh. That's not Christianity. And unfortunately, that is what the majority of that which is called the Christian life is. So the ultimate aim of this is going to be a deep and abiding, transformative and liberative, life-changing event that will cause you to live a life, a, an ethical life beyond law, an ethical life beyond the Adamic ontology, but it's an ethical life that is centered in Christ and live by the Holy Spirit and not by human power at all. The whole old man has to be put off. Now, Paul wrote about that in Laodiceans. He wrote about that in Colossians. He wrote about that in a different way in Romans. He wrote about that in a different way in Galatians. But I don't think the church quite got that message yet. Neither do I think the church quite got the message, by and large, of the unconditional salvation that God wrought in Christ. And it's an essentially Trinitarian doctrine we're talking about. So what am I doing? What are we doing when we gather together? Our general aim, which hasn't been changed much by my study of Campbell, which I did between Rev and Better Call Paul, fresh from Rev the book, and we're going to see Revelation backlit by Romans backlit by Romans, which means I think our greatest insights into the book of Revelation have yet to be seen, oddly enough and ironically enough. But from our study of Rev the book, I was asking a question. I'm going to slightly reframe that. As the apocalypse written by John is an epistle. In other words, there are many things that the apocalypse is, but the general frame of the entire book of Revelation begins like Paul began his epistles with a greeting, grace be with you and through Jesus Christ and ends with a salutation, grace be with you. And therefore, it, the general frame of the apocalypse of John is an epistle. So my question is, all of Paul's epistles, the whole collection, and there are 13 of them, but we're going to deal with 10 specifically first and then First and Second Timothy and Titus, there's a different agenda there. In one sense. In fact, that's kind of a stepping back and a summarization of all that Paul taught and all that Paul presented and all that Paul proclaimed. But can all of Paul's epistles be framed as an apocalypse, which means a revelatory disclosure of the triune God 
in an act of unconditional salvation for the human race. And my question hasn't changed much after reading 936 pages of Campbell, followed by 400 pages on his framing of Paul, which is very helpful, and I'm going to use his stuff without apology because he's done the best research on it that has been done to date on the Book of Romans and many other things about Paul. So fresh from Rev the book, we're asking the question, which I'll slightly reframe now. As the apocalypse written by John is an epistle, is the Pauline corpus, that's what the academics call it. I call it collection. Let's just call it corpus, the whole body of epistles. Is that an apocalypse? We get hints from this when Galatians 1.12, when Paul says, I received this gospel, not from men, nor was I taught it. That means by catechism. I wasn't catechized about this by men, but I received it by a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the same phrase John uses in Revelation 1.1, an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Apocalypse generally denotes an unconditional divine act of saving grace toward the human race. And Paul says he received his gospel by an apocalypse. In Romans 1.17, the key verse says that the righteousness of God, which we've seen from Psalm 98, is the saving act of God the King on behalf of his people in Christ, his human representative. The righteousness of God is revealed, and that's apocalypto, revealed, unveiled. The divine saving act of God in Christ is being revealed apocalyptically in the gospel from faithfulness, that's Christ's, to faithfulness, that's your participation in the ongoing faithfulness of Christ, making faith not the means of appropriating justification or salvation, but rather the means of assurance and understanding of the total love of God in Christ. That's the controversial part is the unconditionality about it. Most people who have heard my messages on Revelation are pretty solid on the universality of that salvation, but not on the unconditionality. We're going to unfold that very gradually, very carefully, very delicately. That is rocket science. That is brain surgery. And there's a lot in the epistles. There's more in the epistles to learn than there is about medical anatomy. Believe me, if I may say that word, believe me. Now... If, if this is true, and if we can demonstrate it, and I'll give you right off that there's a hint, I think we will demonstrate it very clearly, then Paul's collection of epistles can be described as the proclamation or even the presentation. If you read Galatians 3.1, he said to the Galatians, you have had Christ portrayed to you as crucified. That means that they had had him presented in a way that revealed that all of God's plan is in Jesus Christ, him crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended. The gospel's all about God's son. It's not about you. It's not about your changed morality. It's not about your changed ethics. It's not about you being good now and you were bad once. It's all about God's son and God's saving divine initiative and action which continues in what we call a Christian spiritual life. It's God in you, willing and working according to his good pleasure. This is a law-free, liberative ethic, but it is a pneumatological ethic. It's an ethic that is in the Holy Spirit, the fruit of which is love, joy, and peace. It's a Christological ethic, a truly Christocentric ethic that will challenge people who always like to use Christocentricity as a slogan. Now, this is a challenge, and it's a challenge because of love. If we can demonstrate that the apocalypse of John as an epistle is like the Pauline corpus of epistles as an apocalypse, then Paul's collection of epistles can be described as the presentation or the proclamation of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. And as Romans 16, 25 to 27 says, Paul says, this is according to the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of a mystery. And there's no mystery to the mystery. The mystery of God's will is to sum up everything in Christ. And there we come to Laodiceans, as we will see. 
again, the controversial additive to my messages is going to involve the question of unconditionality. That's already spurred some interest and some reaction and some fallout. And I'm glad because I did it on purpose. If this is the case, that is, that Paul's collection of epistles called the corpus or the body of Paul's writings can be considered or seen from way back as an apocalypse, a revelation of Jesus Christ in his universally and unconditionally saving significance. If we can say that, then this is going to open up the idea that the intention of God for the 21st century is that this message be proclaimed. It's the unchained gospel. It's the gospel unchained from human tradition, from false interpretations and construals of the book of Romans, etc. And it's time for that to be proclaimed to the transformation of a lot of people, tens of thousands, if not millions, in our generation. So the aim of the study is not divisive, but unifying of the body of Christ. It may appear divisive because it will challenge traditional construals or interpretations. But that's not intended to be divisive any more than Jesus Christ's challenge of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the Essenes and Paul's challenge of the Gnostics and the legalists and the Judaizers was divisive. It wasn't intended to be divisive. In fact, its intention is unifying of the body of Christ. I think you're going to see that I'll be as committed to unity as Paul's epistles are by the time this is done. So don't use it as a case for unity. If you understand the universal gospel of Jesus Christ, you do not browbeat people who do not believe in it. It came to you by a gracious disclosure. It'll come to them by a gracious disclosure, not by you beating down the walls of their house and knocking down the doors of their mind. That'll only send it backwards. So that's just a little bit of counsel, no charge for it. And so God has destined this message to be proclaimed in our time. So we must redeem the time that we are given, which is far more limited than you can imagine. Redeem the time that we're given by assembling of ourselves together, as Hebrews 10.25 says, around our Messiah. We are a messianic community. We assemble around our Messiah, Jesus Christ. We gather together in his name. So to answer these questions, we agree with the imperative of the triune God. What was the imperative of the triune God with regard to Saul of Tarsus? We better call Paul. Let's call Paul out from Saul. Saul of Tarsus is a man in the epitome of the Adamic ontology, what the Adamic ontology is like. He doesn't think the law is hard to fulfill. He rejoices in that he fulfilled it completely. He is the Adamic man, the quintessential Adamic man. Let's call Paul out of him. Let's have him be the proponent of the gospel of unconditional salvation that we have. Let's call Paul. So in order to answer these questions, I'm simply agreeing with what the Trinity said about Paul. We better call him. Let's see what Paul thinks about his own epistles. And the closest we can get to this is by looking at them very clearly. This means that I'm going to be oscillating between close-up engagement with the text. Now, some people don't like that because they want a general idea of Christianity so they can re-educate their Adamic nature and preserve their life in Adam. And the more you engage close-up and get into what one man called the raw guts of the texts of the New Testament, you won't be challenged. You might be able to have a pep talk given to you, and you might be emotionally charged by a pep talk, but you won't be changed by the Holy Spirit's transformative power. So it's gonna, we're going to oscillate, go back and forth between a close-up engagement, close-quarter combat, we might call it, close-up engagement with the texts of Paul's epistles, and then from time to time step way back and do one of these things and look at the whole picture, the whole big picture that's being framed in front of us here, and see if we don't see a lamb having been slaughtered and raised and enthroned and ruling over the universe, as Revelation puts it. So this means an oscillation, and we're going to engage the text in a moment. I've asked you to turn to, what's the name of the epistle again? 
Exactly. And I'll be showing you that. It's not Ephesians anymore. It's not, I'm that convinced after study and after hundreds of hours of study. It's Laodiceans. In spite of the fact that scribes didn't want it to be to Laodicea because it got a bad rap by the time John wrote to them in Revelation 3.14 to 22. But they failed to recognize that the deepest challenge was in Laodicea, but was so was the most glorious promise given to the overcomers in Laodicea, that you would sit down on my throne, even as I have sat down on my father's throne. That's the epitome of elevating grace. So we will step back to look at the whole collection. It can be argued that the epistles to Timothy and Titus include comprehensive summations of Pauline doctrine. So that's one way to step back and see what, like Paul said in Titus 2.11, for example, it says, the grace of God has appeared, colon, salvation for all men. Now that's a big picture. That's stepping back. That's a big picture. Teaching us to deny all impiety. And to deny all impiety, friends, doesn't just mean that you deny those overt sins that the teacher berated in his turn or burn message in Romans 1, but that we also turn from the Adamic re-education into moral goodness in in the view of our present culture. The present culture has an idea what a moral, ethical person is. And more and more, that person can't really say anything. That person can't say man or woman because there's people that are undecided. That person can't say patriotism because it's misinterpreted. That person can't say almost, there's almost anything that you normally say you can't say anymore. That's the epitome of sociological legalism. So Paul wasn't that way. Paul had a way of speaking and it wasn't offensive. It was epistolary. It wasn't street level. It was a little higher than street level. It wasn't too fancy either. It wasn't way up here. It was regular communication that was understandable. The implications of this study on our lives will be deep and abiding and real. It will tend to liberate us into a law-free Christian life, which we might call a Christological and pneumatological ethic beyond Adamic ontology, beyond our life in this world. As Jesus said, if you maintain, if you keep your life in this world, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life in this world, which is, means your Adamic ontology, your life in the Adamic ontology, you will gain the experience of the life of the age to come in this age, in some measure, only inaugurated, nothing like the final real thing, but you will experience it. And this is the, not the re-education of the Adamic. You know what God said about the Adamic existence? He will destroy it from the root beneath and destroy its fruit above. The fruit of the Adamic ontology is everything that Galatians 5, 19 to 21 says. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, fidelity, patience, gentleness, meekness, self-control. The fruit of the spirit. That's a pneumatological ethic, a law-free ethic, a liberative, Christocentric ethic ethic. God destroyed the root of Adamic ontology in the cross of Christ. He destroys the fruit of it in our lives as we respond and walk by means of the spirit. Because if we walk by means of the spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the Adamic ontology. Everywhere you see flesh in its negative connotation in Paul, realize that he is speaking about an irredeemable Adamic existence, that which God didn't save, but crucified that which God cut off in a circumcision not made with hands. And that's what Christians are holding on to and Christianizing. And that's probably going to be the most pointed point of this whole thing. The cutting edge of the sword is going to come down and show how much of our Christianity is nothing more than the re-education or the reconfiguration of Adamic ontology or the flesh. And it's applauded by people. And it's, oh, that person's a wonderful Christian. Why? Well, they did a wonderful thing. And they smile all the time. Somebody who smiles all the time isn't necessarily a Christian. They're possibly over-medicated. People say, how about you? You don't smile hardly at all. I smile inwardly all the time. I have this big smile in my soul. It's going on all the time. Sometimes it's a sarcastic smile. 
Sometimes it's a peaceful smile. I've been medicated by the word of God. Now, here's some history. We know for sure. We know with absolute dating. And I'm, again, I'm taking what's been done. Thanks, Douglas Campbell, for doing the homework on this. And he's done it. And it's, it's convincing. And I'll, if you have a problem with it, I'll, I'll discuss it. You can send me and ask me questions. Historically, we know that Paul's commission, that means his commission outside Damascus when he confronted or was confronted by Jesus the Nazarene, the righteous one, was A.D. 34. Now, scholars call it C.E. now, common era, and B.C.E., before the common era. So whether I say C.E. or A.D., that's apparently outmoded now, but I still like it. And so in 34, Paul received his commission. He says himself in Galatians that two point X years later, he said three years later, but the way that they used to speak back then, they kind of rounded up. So it could have been two years, seven months, two years, nine months, or close, very close to three years later, he said he went up to Jerusalem by a revelation, apocalypse, by a disclosure that he should go to Jerusalem. Christ had commissioned him as the apostle to the pagans. He went to Jerusalem after that. His first visit to Jerusalem was three years after his commission. We know with an absolute dating that after Paul's commission, he preached the gospel. He didn't go meditate at the base of Sinai. He went out and preached the gospel. He was doing it already in Arabia and in Damascus and then later in Cilicia and then back to Syria and other places. But we know that in his communication of the gospel, he already got in trouble. And that it's in 36 AD that he was let down in a basket through the wall of Damascus to escape from Aretas. We know that Aretas was a conqueror of that area. We know that he was in office at that time. We know that Paul, for some reason, had to get out of Dodge, and he did. There are people still living in the walls of Damascus. There are apartments there. Paul was allowed to go through one of them and let down in a basket to escape from Aretas. That was 36. We know with an absolute dating that in 39 or late 39 or early 40, Gaius Caesar planned to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem and put a statue or an image of himself in that place. That occasioned a panic in Thessalonica. Somebody wrote a forged letter to them and said, this means the Antichrist has arisen. This means that the Lord has come, and it means that you have been left behind. And so they panicked. You know what they said? (laughs) We better call Paul. And they did. And Paul wrote them back. And he wrote them back, especially in 2 Thessalonians, and said, I don't want you guys to be so soon shaken as if this event means that the day of the Lord had already arrived and that you were left behind. And the Lord came and took his people and left behind the false rapture doctrine. He corrected it. So we know that happened in 40. From 40 to 49, we are only aware of Paul's mission in the sense of imprisonments, beatings, lashings by the Jews, beatings by the Romans, imprisonments, many of them. And it's from one of those imprisonments that he wrote Colossians, Laodiceans, Laodiceans first. Colossians kind of intervened as an urgent thing along with Philemon. We know that he wrote that from an imprisonment in 50 CE. So between 40 and 50, Paul explains his life in 2 Corinthians as travels by sea, by land, perils by journeymen, perils rather by bandits, Perils in the city, perils in the country, labors more than all the other apostles. So he was working in a missionary enterprise. It wasn't until 50 that he wrote. After Thessalonians, first and second, that were written one right after the other. He didn't write again until 50. And what he wrote then was Laodiceans. Of all the epistles that bear Paul's name, with the exception of the three pastorals, as they're called, wrongly, but we'll get into that later, Ephesians comes way before Romans. Romans is last. Romans is wrote, written in the spring of 52 AD. Now you say, why does that matter? I'll tell you why it matters. It really matters about when Paul wrote Ephesians because Ephesians is his opening, coherent, full, pristine 
expression of his gospel. He had learned about a group of pagan converts. He was not aware of any infiltration by a third party as he was in Romans. So he didn't write about justification as he did in Romans where the whole thing came up. He didn't have to write about justification because that wasn't his gospel. His gospel was God summarizing everything in Christ, the mystery of God's intent. He's able to, with this pagan congregation that already exists, you say, how did it already exist? Well, remember when Jesus' disciples came to him and said, there's other people in your name casting out devils, prophesying, and proclaiming. And, of course, the apostles, the the disciples, should we call fire down upon these people? And Jesus said, leave them alone. See, at one place, Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. But he also graciously said, if they're not against me, they're for me. In other words, there was preaching going out in Jesus' name and people being converted and granted faith. And there were people going out along with Paul, Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, Tychicus, Epaphras, and they were forming churches that Paul didn't plant But Paul had authority over him because it was given to him by Jesus Christ. You are the apostle to the Gentiles. He went to Jerusalem and he shook hands with James, John, and Cephas, and they agreed. They gave the right hand of fellowship. There was no argument there. It was a fruitful trip to Jerusalem. And Paul was told, we agree, you're supposed to go preach to the uncircumcision and Peter to the circumcision. So Paul, on his way back from Jerusalem, the second visit to Jerusalem was 13.x years after the first visit. He says it himself. I didn't go up again until 14 years later. And so we're dealing there with around 49 to 50. And that's when, on the way back, Paul confronted Cephas at Antioch. That event happened around 49 or 50, late 49 or 50, Galatians 2, 11 to 14, Paul confronted Peter because he stood condemned, Paul said. He was withdrawing from eating with the pagans, which said a lot. You know what it said? It said that the gospel doesn't include these people until they get circumcised and follow the Torah. So we can't eat with them. And so Paul confronted that. Even Barnabas was carried out, carried along with that. Deception. So there's all kinds of candidates for false teachers at this time, some of whom had very high reputations. I'm not saying it's Cephas. I'm not saying it's Barnabas or James at any phase of their life. I'm not saying that. But there was a teacher that Paul confronted head on, and it was a knockdown, drag out argument that unfolds in Romans. And by 320, the foe is knocked down. And for the rest of the epistle, he's dragged out. But we haven't seen it as that. We look at it as Romans Road. We look at it as the four things of the spiritual laws. The first of one, the first one of which is the only one that counts, according to the scriptures. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's what Ephesians teaches. But we have we haven't seen this until recently. Some have seen it, but it's been kept in the academy. One of my jobs is to go into the academy, see what they're talking about, see if the Holy Spirit gave it to them, and inasmuch as he did, bring it to the church. Up until now, the church is 150 years behind what the academy receives through their study. Things are about to change around here with regard to that. And pastors should be doing that work. Pastors should be doing that work hard study, research, and academic research, and bring it to the church of Jesus Christ. So 13 years after the first visit, Paul, that puts about 17 years on to Paul's commission. And so we're dealing with right around, it's actually less because it's 2.x and 13.x. So the Antioch incident happened in 49 to 50. And therefore, there was a proxy founding of Colossae at that time. Around By mid-50, there was a church at Colossae. Colossae. Paul didn't plant it, and a guy named Epaphras was largely responsible for it. Paul's return from his Jerusalem visit, where he was authorized. In other words, they were just saying what Jesus Christ said. We do agree you are the apostle to the pagans, and that, that is your, you're the head over that whole mission. Jesus Christ gave it to him. The apostles agreed. It was all good. On the way 
to his from from Jerusalem to the Aegean Sea via Antioch and the Galatian mission to Asia. He was imprisoned at a place called Atamia. That's the most likely we think. I wouldn't say that dogmatically, but it's most likely. It was a little east of Colossae. He said to them, I haven't yet seen your face in the flesh. He did see them later. He hadn't yet seen the Laodiceans. He heard of their existence. He didn't say it can't be a church because it isn't me because whoever is not against me is for me. There were, in other words, there were churches being planted. And so what happened is after Paul heard about that, he began to write a letter in which he wasn't dealing with any problems. And so he was free to give a general account of his proclamation of Christ without having to deal with the justification theory that he had to deal with in Romans, without having to deal with a false teacher that he had to deal with in Romans. And so he has a kind of what I call a pristine account of his gospel to the Laodiceans. And that's why it's the most important in one regard. And so... Laodiceans were converts from paganism, and Paul wanted them to know what that is. He said, you know what you are? He's telling them this is your identity as pagan converts into Christ. You have a law-free ethic. You have a Christocentric, Christological, pneumatological life, a life of freedom. You're not people that have to follow the Mosaic law. You don't have to be circumcised and then have a comprehensive following of the Torah. He said he starts teaching them the pristine account of his gospel. So Paul learned of this assembly and having been officially recognized as the apostle to the Gentiles, he would see fit to include this congregation of pagans in his mission, Christian pagans or pagans converted to Christ and to write to them a pristine and coherent account of the gospel about God's Son. And there is nothing about justification here. That's why people have come along, so-called academics, and said, Paul couldn't have written Ephesians. There's different language there. It's written by somebody in the second century. There's, and they, they assume that Ephesians is in the same line up as the chronology of the New Testament, and so they said he couldn't have written it. He not only couldn't have written it, he absolutely did write it, and it's the most close and coherent expression of his gospel. And I'm delighted that we already hit it in in Revelation because we talked about the mystery of God's intent in Ephesians 1.10, to summarize all things, tapanta, in Christ. That's Paul's gospel. And so there's nothing about justification here because there doesn't have to be yet it's not until this wave of false teaching that began in 50 and paul sent out a whole flurry of letters it's obvious in galatians he's dealing with another teacher isn't it another gospel he says it's another gospel and whoever teaches this ought to be accursed whether it's an angel from heaven he's using kind of exaggerated terms to show that this gospel isn't my gospel i'm amazed that you guys have been so soon deserted the one who called you by grace into Christ onto another gospel that doesn't even deserve the title gospel. He's obviously dealing with another teacher there. He's obviously dealing with another teacher in Romans. He's obviously dealing with other teachers in Colossae. He's also dealing with third-party interlopers in 2 Corinthians who call themselves Hebrews. And Paul said, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. I have more imprisonments than those, more beatings than they did, more lashings by the Jews, more beatings by the pagans, travels, shipwrecks, all this stuff, imprisonments, more than all of them. There's my qualifications. And so he always had these third party. Ephesians is free from that, as we called it once. It's going to be a hard time breaking that habit. Laodiceans is free from that. Paul says, okay, here's a group of converted pagan Christians. Let me tell them my gospel and give them a sense of their identity, their destiny, their security in Christ. I am, after all, their apostle, even though I didn't found that church. Christ called me to be the apostle to the Gentiles in Acts 9 and Acts 22 and Acts 26. The apostles agreed in Jerusalem and gave me the right hand of fellowship. So whoever led these people into the gospel and formed this community, I am going to write to them. You see? So 
There's nothing about justification. There's only something a little bit in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, in which it says, for by grace, you have been saved. And the way it's written is saved and secured to have eschatological assurance. See how the commercial is on e-insurance? This is e-assurance, eschatological assurance. One of the main features of Paul's gospel. And it says through faith, but if we take the idea of what faith is and show that it's Christological, that it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, and we see it verified throughout Paul's epistles, by grace you have been saved through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which makes sense because he said once you were dead in trespasses and sins, you were made alive together in Christ. What intervened between them being dead and being made alive? Paul says in Ephesians 2.5, in a parenthesis, by grace you were saved. By grace you were saved. That's all, he need, that's all you need to hear. You were saved by an unconditional act of kindness. But then he explains in 2.8 that it's through faith or through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Not of works. And I would include in that, not of works, including your work of believing. Your work of faith. Let's just for now, for argument's sake, and I won't be dogmatic about it. Let's just for now say that Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved and secured for a final glorious destiny, we could say, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, and that not of yourselves. That would help us explain why we're trying to explain, well, that faith, is it faith but not our faith? Is it faith but not of ourselves? No, it's of Christ's faithfulness and not yours. But here's the point. The Christian life is the continuation of Christ's own faithfulness in your life. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul said, in probably the most definitive testimonial passage of all these epistles. I've been crucified with Christ. He says this after his confrontation with Cephas. Nevertheless, I live. And you see, the life that I now live in the flesh, while I still live in this body, there the flesh isn't Adamic ontology, but this this body. The life that I now live in this body, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God. How do you frustrate the grace of God? Re-educate Adam instead of put him off. Reconfigure him. I realized that when I went into certain stores to shop, like Walmart or something down in Florida, I was looking at this whole aisle. And I said, I love everything in this aisle. And then I said, what is it? And it came to my mind. It's reconfigured sugar. And if you look at every high fructose corn syrup, that's my favorite ingredient. I love that. Everything, everything is reconfigured sugar and the say so you go down the aisle of all the churches in america and i'm not attacking them i'm just saying let's get out of this and all you see is what is this reconfigured adamic ontology sugar it's really not too good for you but the christian life is Christian life says you've been taken out of Adam. You've been slammed into the kingdom of God's dear son, slam dunked right into the kingdom of the son of God's love, taken out of the kingdom of tyranny. And I'll show you what this says in Ephesians 1. This is where we'll engage the text and then close. And all these good things are said about you. You've been raised together with him. And I like what Campbell said. He said, it's got to be good for you. Christianity is good for you. Reconfiguring Adam isn't good for you. The enemies of the cross of Christ, whose God is their belly, will tell you, let's reconfigure Adam. If you're a male, we'll circumcise you to start with. And that's going to have a mystical effect on your ethical behavior. All right. But then we got to go to Leviticus 18.5, because if you're going to live by these, you got to do all of them. So we got to take the pagan converts and bring them into a comprehensive obedience to the law of Moses. You know what's that? That's reconfiguring the Adamic ontology, which God destroyed by, destroyed its root from beneath and desires to th- destroy its fruit from above. Whether the fruit is Adamic niceness or morality or religious ritualism or whether it's immorality. 
by saying in Romans 1, 18 to 32, that's not Paul preaching. I'm not saying that those things that he talks about are good. I hope you get that point. Let's go to Ephesians 1. Now, see what we're going to do. We've oscillated now. There's the big picture. We're going to engage the text. This is where you put on your combat gear. This is CQ, close quarters. Because Paul did recognize something in the epistle to the Laodiceans at the end. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. He recognizes certain powers. He defines death as a power. He defines sin as a power. But let's look at just how Paul writes Laodiceans. He says, oh, there's a cluster. There's a community, a messianic community existing in the Lycus Valley in Laodicea. I don't know who converted these people, but if they're not against me, they were for me. They preached my gospel. They preached the gospel of God, and the church was founded. There is a church that exists there. They are pagans converted to Christ. What, what can I tell them? He tells them this, Paul. This is my translation. This involves the longest sentence, one of the longest sentences in all of literature, not just the Bible. If you study Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, it's one sentence. So a lot of translations will stop and say, the note will say, well, we stopped here to start a new sentence, so it'll be more appropriately understood. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go one sentence, 1, 3 to 14. This is what Paul says. He's pretty excited. Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God. Wait a minute. Hold it. Here we go. You mean you didn't choose to be an apostle? No. I was called apostle. By whom? God. By whose will? God's. Oh, you mean you didn't just say, oh, I wanted to be an astronaut once. Now I want to be an apostle. No, through the will of God. To the holy ones and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Doesn't say in Ephesus there. We know from Colossians 4.16 that this is an epistle sent not as an encyclical. The only places it was supposed to be read at first was Colossae and Laodicea. It wasn't a circular letter, as I once thought. It was reasonable to think that at one point, but it's not. This is to the Laodicean church. But because it doesn't have Laodicea there, it's because Paul intended it to be read in Colossae. He says that in Colossians 4.16. That's lower blade data. Even, though we, even like we know, Paul wrote Romans from Corinth in the house of Gaius from lower blade data. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 16, we know this was to Laodiceans. To the holy ones, or saints, and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus the Messiah. Look what he tells them in verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. And the only thing I want to hit today is that word blessed is a divine action. He has blessed us. It's an aorist active participle for the, just, just to show you something. I'm only saying that to say that there are several of those in this next flurry of sentences. So starting at verse 3, going all the way to verse 14, is the longest sentence in Pauline corpus, but probably one of the longest in literature. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, that's a divine action, with all spiritual blessings in the heavens in Christ. No, he blesses me because I perform well. No, he already blessed you with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly spheres in Christ already. What are you going to do now to get blessed? Well, I could preach, but I don't want to. I want to teach. You got to teach before you preach. If you don't teach first, what are you preaching about? Verse four, even as he has chosen us in him, there's a divine action, an aorist middle indicative. God chose us for himself before the creation of the universe to be holy and unblemished in his sight, in love. There's eschatological assurance. Look at verse 5, having predestined us. So he chose us, having predestined us. That's a divine action, aorist, active, participle, predestined. He chose us, having predestined us, to adoption through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Whose will? God's will. No wonder James even says in 118, God begot us by his own will. God caused our birth by our own will. 
Now, we could even get to the facts of life. Mommy and daddy got together. You were begotten. No, I was begotten because I willed to be. Oh, you, oh, I see. Just hold that thought for a while, for a year or two until we're done with this series. We're half done. But notice what it says. Predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. That's Christ. In whom we have the redemption that is through his blood. His blood is one of many metonymies that Paul uses as a one-word description of his self-sacrificial love culminating in death on the cross for us, which includes the whole event of the Christ event, which also includes his burial and his resurrection and his ascension, all of which are saving actions of God for us, all of which he included us in. For you were crucified with Christ. You died with him. Your life is hid with Christ and God. You were buried with him. You were raised with him. You were ascended with him and sat down with him in the heavenly places. That's what Paul tells these people. That's what you are. That's your identity as pagan converts to Christ. I'm telling you. And so he says in verse 7, in whom we have the redemption that is through his blood. Another metonymy for his blood is his faithfulness. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ is his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name, so that at the mention of his name, every knee will genuflect, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father, meaning to the point where God the Father will be all in all. 1 Corinthians fifteen 28. We've already dealt with that in, in our Revelation study as an adjunct to it. So divine action is the emphasis here. Nothing about theirs yet. And then he says through his blood, another metonymy is his obedience. Through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, we don't know. What is the disobedience? It was a single act to disobey the prohibition to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Through the disobedience of one man, we were all rendered condemned or sinners. Through the obedience of one man, what is that obedience? It's the act of obedience of Jesus Christ to the death of the cross. Through his obedience, all humans are justified, which doesn't say justified in the sense of a legal sense of imputation of righteousness. They are given the justification of life. That means they are given life and totally free deliverance. Not justification by faith. It's deliverance by God through grace and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So verse 7 again, in whom we have the redemption that is through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, commensurate with the wealth of his grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. What does it mean? He gave us this grace. Then he gave us insight and wisdom. Into what? Look at verse 9. Having made known, that's a aorist active participle, divine action, to us, the mystery of his will. And so, so far we have God elected or chose you, having predestined you. Now we have, he has lavished upon you all wisdom and insight, having made known to you the mystery of his will. In other words, because he made known to you the mystery of his will, you have wisdom and insight. And the mystery of his will is what he explains in the next verse. According to the good pleasure of his will. For the administration of the fullness of the ages to sum up everything in the Messiah, everything in the Messiah. You got wisdom and insight. It's because you know that mystery. There's no mystery about the mystery. You don't know that until you're in Christ and you see that in Christ because God lavishes upon you wisdom and insight, making known to you the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure of his will. Once again, God's action, God's will. No human action here yet, except the action of the obedience of the Son to the cross, the blood of Christ. That's the only human action, the action of a divine human on our behalf. Nothing here about human will, only divine will. Just holding on to those thoughts. I'm not going to do anything more than that today. Don't worry, I won't hurt you. In fact, I might be helping you. According to the good pleasure of his will, for the administration of the fullness of the ages, to sum up everything in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him, in whom we have obtained an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance. That's Paul, me and you pagans 
have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined, uh-oh, there's another aorist active participle, divine action again. Having been predestined in accordance with the purpose of him who effects everything according to the determination of his intention. This is intensely Trinitarian, incidentally. This him is God the Father. The blood is the blood of his son. And now we're going to get to the spirit. According to the determination of his intention. That we would be, that we would exist for the praise of his glory as those who are the first to hope in Messiah. Or it could be translated, those who are in the first stages of expectation. Or those who are the first to hope in the Messiah. In whom you also heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom, listen carefully, listen to how I translate this now, because I'm challenging a translation. I'm delighted that Bible translators are considering new translations based on Campbell's findings. It's about time. It's about time they punctuated Romans so we know when Paul's talking and when Paul's mocking. And that's going to come. There will be a translation that will have all that in it. It'll just be wonderful. It'll just be revealing. It'll do stuff that the Reformation didn't even dream of doing. The impact of this find, these new findings and insights are far greater than what was nailed to the wall in 1517 by Martin Luther. Way further. This is going to have way deeper impact on lives. Yours, to start with. He then says, in whom also you believed. Now, if we follow the same coordinates as before, he chose us in Christ, having predestined us. He Gave us adoption, having predestined us. He made known to us the mystery of his will. If we're going to follow this, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, then we should translate it this way. In whom you also believed, having been sealed. Not you were sealed after you believed, but I'll just put it as a question. Is this saying you were sealed after you believed, or is this saying you believed, having been sealed? In other words, were you sealed by the Holy Spirit and then gifted with faith? Or is your faith what made God seal you with the Holy Spirit? If we go by the way it's written and translated on the other ways before, it says, in, in, it says they were marked with the seal of identification, with the seal of the Holy Spirit, and believed as a gift, having been sealed. Having been sealed, you believed. My testimony is that I was sealed with the Holy Spirit and then granted a gift of faith afterwards. That's my testimony. Paul's testimony is he was called to be an apostle and later realized what that means and later believed everything about this revelation of God in Christ. So here's eschatological assurance. We'll close with this. In whom you also heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's the announcement of your salvation. In other words, that it's done. In whom also you believed, listen carefully, having been sealed. There's another V-I-A-P, a verb, an aorist, passive, indicative. Which means you were sealed by God's action with the promised Holy Spirit. Now we have the triune God all together here in an act of salvation. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire actual full possession of it to the praise of his glory. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life promised by Jesus Christ to come after he is glorified through ascension is the guarantee of the full inheritance being realized. When? In the bodily resurrection. So God our Father begot us by his will, not ours. He chose us in Christ because Christ is the one that God chose. And choosing Christ, the elect one, in 1 Peter 1.20, he chooses all the human race in Christ, chosen in him. His blood is a metonymy like faithfulness and obedience for the loving giving of himself for us. In verse 13, they were marked with the seal of identification as the true people of God with the seal of the Holy Spirit and believed as a gift having been sealed. We'll go with that translation for now and argue it later. So in Laodiceans, 
They were chosen in him, God having predestined them. In Laodiceans 1, 8 to 9, he lavished wisdom and insight on them, having made known to them the secret of his intention. And in 1.11, they received an inheritance, having predestined them, been predestined. And likewise, in Laodiceans 1.13, they believed in him, having been sealed by him with the promised Holy Spirit. First sealed, then they believed. So belief or faith must be a gifted participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ because in it, the gospel, the saving act of God in Christ is being revealed from faithfulness. That's Christ's faithfulness because the righteous one shall live by faith, his own faithfulness, Habakkuk 2.4 quoted in Romans 1.17, to faithfulness, which is the faithfulness of Christ in his corporate people. All right, that's enough to challenge you. Let's leave it for today. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity of stuttering, studying, stuttering too, <laughs> stuttering and then studying the epistle of your servant Paul to the Laodiceans, which has an unusual and intriguing appeal to us today in the 20th century. Thank you, Father, for unraveling so much of the chronology, so much of the history so much of the frame of the Pauline epistles so that we can understand them like we haven't ever understood them before. So we take, take us beyond father, take us beyond where we've been before because we cannot stay here. We ask this in Christ's name.